Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome to another edition of Corner Kick. I'm Nathan Strauss, as always, joined by a man who recently got his first haircut in, you know, what, 13 or 14 months in Caleb Rhodes. Yes, I am. I've been shorn like a sheep. Exactly. Sort of Samson, Samson-esque almost. Like, Absolutely. I'm kind of worried that you're going to lose all of your power. Yes, well, we'll have to find out. So far, things are going okay uh, post, post-cut. And we're joined by another man, Nick Gavinden, for whom he might have gotten a haircut, but we couldn't see right now, given his hood. I have definitely not gotten a haircut, but the thing I will say, <laughs> I have retained all of the power that comes with my hair. So no, I am the most powerful one on this podcast. That's true. I, I, I mean, assuming that it hasn't been that way the whole time, I actually scheduled a haircut for Wednesday after seeing the results on, on Caleb's head. But anyways, so onto way, this. Nathan will be finishing with the bronze medal here. <laughs> when do I not, really? Um, but <laughs> Don't shave your head again, okay? We don't need egg Nathan. Just no, that, see, that was, that was a quarantine. That was a quarantine mishap. As we approach the sort of one-year quarantine-versary, um, that was definitely a personal low. But see, this is the trouble with like us not doing like putting these things on like YouTube or anything is that like we reference these like visual things or these visual cues in the audience, the audience is like no idea what we're talking about. Either way, shall we get on to someone who has definitely not changed their hairstyle in like the past? Ever? Yes. Yeah. So let's go on to the soccer. Um, and we're going to start with Zlatan Ibrahimovic in a very Zlatan Ibrahimovic-esque manner uh, coming out and saying that athletes should not talk about politics in reference to lebron in reference to lebron this is something that we've talked about a lot going back basically mm-hmm. since the podcast's inception um obviously like all of us do not agree with zlatan whatsoever but to have someone who is so um notorious for kind of having a character um i i kind of got the sense that this is actually something that he genuinely believes and i think it shows a side of zlatan that people will often overlook like this is someone who has said disparaging comments about women's football he says that he doesn't believe that women's football should be treated you know anywhere close to equally as the men's game and now he's saying that lebron and other athletes should not be talking politics of course he's then rewarded with a europa league draw against maybe the most outspoken player in the soccer world today um and marcus rashford so guys what do we think about Zlatan's latest mishap? I think it's funny that Zlatan went to the U.S. for two years, and the two things that he came back to Italy with was that the MLS is shit and the shut up and dribble movement. <laughs> I think of the, the things that we wanted him to take back from America, those were not the two things that I would have picked personally, but those happened to be the two things that he did. Uh, yeah, obviously, I disagree with Zlatan. As we've discussed on this podcast, uh, both like we've talked about the NBA, we've talked about global soccer we talked about a variety of different sports and how athletes can use their platforms to uplift the communities around them i think we've certainly seen marcus rashford do that and be awarded with an mbe uh, this past year for his efforts and there's certainly a bunch of other players but i also found interesting because you know zlatan has also not shied away from political stances in the past you know you remember when he got all those temporary tattoos to raise awareness for children 
who are like struggling with hunger. Uh, he's made, you know, several business moves outside of football. So he definitely has a prolific life outside of the game. However, I think these <laughs> these comments are a bit hypocritical when it comes to, you know, there's lots of Ibrahimovic enterprise that we've come to know. Yeah, I mean, obviously, in terms of the like actual politics of his no politics statement, I, I'm on, I agree with you guys. Just whenever things like this happen, though, I'm just like, why do these players even say anything? Like, what does Zlatan gain by possibly sharing his opinion here? How has his publicist never been like, bro, this view that you have is probably like not what you should be sharing out loud. And I just don't being get why people care. Is like a death sentence. It's like being Kanye West's oh manager my God. or something. Dude, like, I, I, would not, I would not wish being Zlatan's publicist on my worst enemy. But besides all that, I just like don't fundamentally get why people care. Like what irks Zlatan so much that a basketball player is doing political things that really don't affect him at all. Like, I just don't understand what would bring you to care so much to, like, make that statement. Like, of all the things Zlatan says, right, why is this the thing that, like, pushes him over the edge? I don't mean to speculate too much, but it's just, like, weird. No, I agree. I think it's interesting because if you if you watch the interview where he gave the comment, he, he said it in, like, such a laid-back manner, which I think goes to Nathan's point of, like, this is something that he he believes and he doesn't feel like he's, you know, under any pressure to share his, his viewpoints. And I think the other thing is that Zlatan Ibrahimovic also alluding to something that Nathan said is a made man. Like we know the character of Zlatan, we know, you know, he's going to do the, the lion shit, you know, like the Zlatan character is never going to leave the arena of football, you know, the arena of sport. Zlatan will always be relevant and there's no you know we might come back to these comments a few years down the line but there's really no significant amount of damage stuff like this can do to his brand and i think he knows that part of me i think people as a as fans want to believe that the athletes who they look up to or at least support are good people but i'm just not entirely sure that that is the case with this one even if we acknowledge that he is uh you know, playing a character or, you know, sometimes can be a little bit too immersed in his whole God gimmick, uh, if you will. And I think that's that that's exactly it, Nathan. And I think these we want to prop these guys up on a pedestal sometimes without remembering the fact that also something that we've talked about a lot on this podcast, these people are human beings and human beings are always inconsistent. So I think that's a good reminder. Yeah. Yeah, and sort of going off of that, I think we got a reminder, at least on the American soccer side of things, yesterday at the United States Annual General Meeting, which invites you know all of the representative bodies um, for U.S. soccer. Um, they voted to repeal the no-kneel policy that was put into place after uh, Megan Rapinoe knelt in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick back in 2016. It was a 2017 policy. It ended up getting repealed, but there were some pretty disconcerting remarks uh, primarily made by Seth John, um, who's a U.S. Paralympian, former armed service member, um, who went on a seven and a half minute diatribe talking about black on black crime, downplaying the sort of legacy of slavery and basically parroting a number of right wing racist talking points that we've seen over and over again in the past year. 
It's caused a lot of controversy because no one really moved to censure him at all in this entire seven and a half minute, you know, virtual meeting. And U.S. soccer was pretty late to issue a statement on the comments as well. Yeah, and it was a pretty weak statement, too. And for U.S. soccer, especially on the women's side of things, who have so often been the champions of diversity, um, at, at least on the players level, their DEI initiatives as a as an organization have often been pretty lax and seeing that there are a number of people who at least tacitly support this kind of rhetoric um, is is pretty disappointing and going off of what Zlatan was saying it's definitely uh, it's definitely something to to keep in mind if you're an American soccer fan I don't get why it's such an issue for people to kneel or to not kneel it frankly it is like the ultimate freedom of speech thing like the fact that leagues even think that they should be compelling people to do stuff like that is nuts to me. The fact that right-wing people think that it's okay to compel people to do a type of speech is also nuts to me because it always comes back to free speech. Seth Yan clearly has some things he needs to work through himself. Again, going back to this other thing, I don't know why you feel the, like compelled to say these things out loud in like a meeting like this. I don't like I I just cannot understand the mindset of these people. And I think that's my fundamental issue. Like, yes, we could say they're like wrong at everything, but I just don't understand what could make you so upset that you feel the need to like talk about black on black crime at like a U.S. Soccer Federation thing about whether players can kneel or not. Like, honestly, people need to be more focused on like, wow, why do these people feel compelled to kneel? And maybe we should address those things rather than just forcing people to stand up for the anthem. I feel like we've kind of lost the plot on this one in like all American sports. And I think Seth Yan is just kind of like the saddest like incarnation of this debate that we've had right now. Especially because coming into this meeting, it was pretty obvious that this was going to get repealed. So there were really, it was just a seven minutes. And let me just say something like as someone who's like an actor and he's performed before, like seven minutes of someone standing up there and talking is like a really <laughs> awkward long amount of time to be listening to someone like spew racist rhetoric like that. So I feel awful for anyone who had to sit through it. I also think Caleb, you're right in that U.S. soccer was in a particularly unique position because the spotlight, I think, of the nation is the brightest on them now than it has ever been before. You know, they have probably the most promising crop of young players coming through U.S. soccer that we've ever seen at one time. You know, Gio Reyna, Pulisic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of those players playing the trade in Europe and domestically right now. Also, they have, you know, the most dominant international side in the women's game. And this was an opportunity for them to come out quickly and denounce this and really make a statement saying, like, you know what? No, we're not like the NFL. We're not like the NHL, MLB, we're not like these other American sports that weigh business and politics on an even scale. We're going to take a more direct approach in confronting racism like this. And I think in, in the delay in which it took them to do that yesterday, I think it, 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 it set them back in a lot of people's eyes, especially mine, because I, I, was, I was impressed with, you know, the lack of speed and the lack of yeah, or an urgency, urgency, I guess, is another exactly. word. Exactly. Urgency is the yeah. word I'm looking for. I just lost it there. No, absolutely. And as always, it seems like the burden of uh, the movement falls on the players, which we have seen across all sports and across the soccer world uh, as well. But why don't we get 
on to the action from this weekend. We may as well start off with a game that had a lot of promise um, and fell flat as so many of the Sunday matinee games have done this year. It is Christian Pulisic, Chelsea nil, Marcus Rashford's United nil in a stalemate of a match. Yeah, Caleb and I watched this game together. I think we talked about a lot of stuff that wasn't the game, um, as is per usual with our Zoom calls when you watch these things. Um, because they always end up being bad. <laughs> Every single game we watch together is always bad. Yeah, I think the worrying thing for Oleg Gunnar Solskjaer's Manchester United, aside from the refereeing controversies, which we'll get onto, it's a broader topic that we're going to talk about today, is that they have only scored one goal against the big six teams this season, and that was in the 6-1 demolition at home to Tottenham. In all of the other games, they've played two games against Chelsea now, they've played two games against Arsenal, they've played one game against Liverpool, one game against Spurs, and they've only scored one goal in all of those fixtures, and it was a Bruno Fernandes penalty. So if you're going to be critical of Ole and why United are have opened up a considerable gap between themselves and Manchester City. Obviously, the defense is a huge worry. But in games like this, these massive games, Ole doesn't force the issue enough. And I think United had a good chance to win today at Stamford Bridge, especially on the balance of play in the first half. And then the second half, they really allowed Chelsea back into the game, allowed Chelsea on the ball, allowed Kovacic and Kante time to work things through in the midfields. And I think this is a huge disappointment for Manchester United that the title is well and truly over now, if it wasn't before. And I think it's down to United really not forcing the issue in games like this. What this game also showed is that Manchester United desperately need a striker. Mason Greenwood, I think he's better on the wing than at forward. Also, he's still only, what, 19 or 20. He's not developed yet. And then especially with Cavani injured and Martial out of form, they lack a focal point especially when Bruno Fernandes doesn't have penalties that he gets to score. Like, they're, they're going to be starved for goals. And I think this summer, they're going to have to find an actual permanent solution at striker because they can't expect to challenge for the league if they're relying on some combination of an aged Cavani, you know, a young Mason Greenwood, and just hoping that Martial can find some consistency. They need to hit the ground running now. They're second place in the league. They should be doing better than they are. Yeah, and I definitely, I definitely think, I definitely think, come summertime, um, you have to think that a lot of Manchester United fans are going to want the club to go back in for Jaden Sancho. I think he's been a long-standing target, but I just don't necessarily see the fit or the need for this team. They've got young wingers aplenty. They've got um, Facundo, whatever the year, the young Uruguayan kid they just signed. They've got Ahmad Diallo, who they just brought in as well. Yeah, Palestri. Um, and then they've got guys like Greenwood, Martial, and Rashford who are all probably best suited to play on the wings. At the end of the day, none of us seriously believed that United were going to be challenging for the title. Um, I think it might have been a byproduct of a good run of form. Um, and that was sort of before City's dominance really came to fruition. But yeah, a game like this, I think Chelsea were probably content with the point, I think Tuchel is still getting settled in. I do think it's interesting that... Oh, no, I disagree. Really? I think it's interesting that that two of the three players in his back three are players that Lampard largely discarded for the majority of his tenure. And I know Thiago Silva is injured, but I do think that there are some promising signs for them. But again, another sort of disappointing performance from the attacking three and another early exit for Callum Hudson-Odoi. Oh, I think, I think Chelsea fans and Tuchel have to be 
kicking themselves that they didn't get three points in this game. It was a game at home. It was a very winnable game from them on the balance of play. I think they're also missing an out-and-out goal scorer. Uh, no Timo Werner today. He was on the bench. No Tammy Abraham through injury. And Olivier Giroud just can't do it every game. I think it's we've become accustomed to him having flashes of brilliance every now and then. And then, you know, game to game, he's not as impressive. I think the worrying thing for this Chelsea team is goals. I don't know where their goals are coming from. They have a lot of creative, talented players like Mason Mount. Ziyech, I think, has had a really off season. I don't know whether it's a combination of injuries and being new to the Premier League. Pulisic as well. I thought he would have a, a big impact under the manager that gave him his debut as a professional and Thomas Tuchel. That hasn't quite happened yet. They just look a bit stagnant in the build-up play. Thomas Tuchel, ever since he took over Chelsea, I don't know if you guys have been listening to his interviews, but he has a very soothing voice, so I enjoy listening to him speak. And he's always talking about Chelsea struggling in the last 20 meters of the pitch. He always pinpoints that as being something that they need to improve. Chelsea were awful in like the last 50 meters of the pitch today. Their, their buildup, I think, lacked a real heavy impetus. And Everton are not, are two, have two games in hand on them. Liverpool won today. West Ham, I think, have been putting together some impressive performances. Maybe they'll fall off. Tottenham won a massive game today and looked pretty impressive. So I think if you're Chelsea, this, this is a game that they needed to get three points from, especially considering that they have Liverpool on Thursday. Tuchel has largely stabilized the team in a lot of ways. The defense seems a little more set. I think the wing backs have allowed a player like Marcus Alonso, who didn't feature today, um, to sort of show his strengths in general, though. I do think Tuchel has not figured out how he wants to arrange those front three players. right? And there's a lot of ways you can set up the front three in a 3-4-3. You can have a cam with two strikers. You can have two cams and one striker. You can have two wingers and a forward. Today, it seemed like he just was like, go, like do things. Like he, there was no plan at all. Especially because he went strikerless at one point. Yeah, exactly. It was even stranger when he pulled off Giroud for Pulisic. But then it was really unclear whether Pulisic was supposed to stay wide or whether he was the one through the middle. And like, I, I don't know. And I think what Nick and I were talking about during the game, at least, is they have this extra width because of the wingbacks, which helped contain Manchester United on the wings. But they didn't use it at all going forward because all of their attackers were all located centrally and they never made any good overlapping runs. So I think Tuchel has an array of attacking players to play with. Kai Havertz is one of them, although we haven't seen him in a long time. Um, He's on the bench right now. But I'm not yet sure what the plan is going forward. We'll see against Liverpool what happens. But I think Tuchel has not figured out the attacking phase of this team at all. Yeah, and a pretty big next two weeks for Chelsea as they have Liverpool, then Everton, then Leeds, and then they will defend their 1-0 lead from the first leg against Atletico Madrid. So a pretty pivotal month uh, for Thomas Tuchel. But Nick, you mentioned Spurs winning big today. It might not have been against the most daunting of opponents. They stomped out Burnley 4-0 at home, but I think it was the personnel on the pitch who were delivering that was the big story. It has been Gareth Bale's season once again for Spurs. He's got eight goal involvements in his last four games for the club, and it seems like Mourinho might have a bit of a second wind going for him right now. All I know is that Nick and I were talking the talk about Gareth Bale in September, and I'll admit we were wrong for the first 
I guess it's been five months now or something. We were wrong for several months, but mostly because Mourinho wouldn't play this man. But now Mourinho finds himself in a dogfight for the top six, and he knows his job is on the line. Frankly, his reputation as a top-class manager is on the line right now after some high-profile failures. And he says, you know who I have? You know who I have? I have Gareth Bale. Okay, the man has four goals, three assists over his past four games. Two of them were against Wolfsburger. We'll throw that out there. But the point is, you put the man, you put the legends on the field, and the legend delivers. This man, Gareth Bale, nine goals, 20 games this season. He's probably, he must be like the third top scorer on the team. I don't know why we have waited so long to unleash this player, but he is unleashed. He is unleashed. And frankly, Tottenham need that because they are in an absolute dogfight right now. But I'm I'm pleased. I'm pleased to see Gareth Bale back on the field. Yeah, this was feel good, especially since Bale, the amount of money that Spurs paid to bring him in, both on the loan fee and the wage front, I think they needed to get something from him. And I think two things. One, he looks fit. He finally looks, you know, relatively 100% fit and ready to play. I think that was a criticism of him when he came in. That's probably why Mourinho was slow to pick him for games, leaving him out in the Europa League to kind of get match fit. Looks like physically, he looks like the Gareth Bale that we remember. Secondly, I don't think he's a winger anymore. I think that's pretty clear. I think a lot of that explosiveness uh, is gone, or not gone, but is now going to be redirected through the middle of the pitch, which I think suits him. I think if he's, you know, creating shots for himself, laying off passes to Harry Kane, maybe, you know, drifting out, out wide a little bit to support Hunman Son, I think that's his best role, almost like a second striker. And I think that's something that Harry Kane has desperately needed. I think when Harry Kane gets in the final third, it's either, you know, he takes it by himself or he tries to find Son and that's it. Like, there is no third option. Mura has always been out wide. Bergvine has always been out wide. I think if Bale can support Harry Kane as, like, a second striker, that is a really, really valuable weapon for Spurs going forward this season. Yeah, absolutely. I think the thing that impressed me most about Gareth Bale today was that assist to Harry Kane where he just... It was vintage. It was playmaker Gareth Bale from 2011 where he picked up the ball in his own half and sort of just drilled a, a 50 yard through ball um, and then Harry Kane finished really well yeah I definitely I definitely think that that bringing Gareth Bale a little bit more central almost playing him like an inverted winger um, a la Thomas Tuchel as Caleb was talking about seems to be his best position and even though I, he still can produce moments of magic from the wing one of the goals he scored against Wolfsburger was a very uh, sort of vintage Gareth Bale goal where he did the little Ronaldo chop inside and left the defender for dead before curling it on his left. But it just seems like the best way to ensure that he stays fit and stays productive is by having him be the man right behind Harry Kane, which is frankly an adjustment that Mourinho might not have wanted to make. And it's a similar kind of position that Dele Ali occupies as well. And he's someone who's also been brought back into the fold lately. Um, it's almost as if relying on two players with a proven history of goals and assists um, is one way to start scoring and assisting more. Um, but big win for Spurs. And this 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 battle for, you know, top four, top five, even top seven, I think, or top eight actually is going to be European places for this year with the inception of the new um, Europa Conference League. 
it's going to be really, really interesting because you mentioned Nick West Ham. They're currently in a Champions League spot. Teams like Everton and Villa are also there or thereabouts. And then Arsenal are in 10th, just two points behind Spurs and Villa as well. So it's going to be a really interesting last, you know, 12 and a half match weeks of the season. I mean, Arsenal still haven't cleared that uh, 38-point mark, so I'm not sure you're safe from relegation yet. Uh, so let's not you talk top six. In. I think yeah. Brighton are doing Arsenal a lot of favors by not picking up points with their massive XGs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think we should talk, We should probably talk about Arsenal-Leicester just because it was a game with pretty big implications in terms of the table. Leicester are a team that has been really impressive for the majority of this year. It's earned Brendan Rodgers a lot of plaudits, and I think... It, he's my choice right now for for manager of the season, um, just because as impressive as what City are doing, it is far more impressive to be doing it with the kind of money that Leicester have oh, or have not, not spent. David Moyes is the manager of the season. What are you talking <laughs> really? That West Ham squad? Are you kidding me? For them to be in a Champions League place? I picked them to to be in a relegation fight just on the balance of like their team and what Moyes has done in like orchestrating a really organized defense and compactness going forward, relying on Mikel Antonio and Jesse Lingard for goals now and being in a top in a European position. That's incredible to me. Fair enough. So maybe not manager of the year, maybe not. He, maybe he's not the, the presumptive favorite for the award, but what Leicester have done all season has been very impressive, but the injury bug and fixture congestion seems to have caught up with them a lot. They were missing Timothy Castagna for most of the year, or for large portions of the year, as, lo- as well as Ricardo Pereira. James Justin is out for the season. Wesley Fafana is injured. James Madison and Dennis Pryat are both injured as well. And then Iosi Perez has also been hurt, and they looked it today against an Arsenal side that made six changes from their, what I would say is the strongest first choice 11. And they just got pretty much presumptively dominated after scoring an early goal. It was all Arsenal. Um, and I don't think that that is encouraging for a lesser side that just went out of the Europa League to Slavia Praha as well. Now that Leicester are out of the Europa League and are dealing with all these injury problems, hopefully they can consolidate some of that energy and effort back into the Premier League. I think the biggest worry though, the biggest worry for Leicester is the fact that Jamie Vardy is in a woeful run of form right now. And I know he's kind of this sort of mystery player. Like he doesn't really treat his fitness as super important to him. He kind of came on the scene late, but he is 33. He is heavily reliant on his pace. And there was one point in the Arsenal game where it was just a complete foot race between Pablo Marie and Jamie Vardy. And Jamie Vardy couldn't beat Pablo Marie. Now, I, for all I know, Pablo Marie is Usain Bolt. For all I know. But my guess is he's not. And this was like a bad look because Leicester have spent a lot of money on like striker attacker players, none of whom have come close to replacing or showing the knack that they might be able to replace the Jamie Vardy goal-scoring burden. And I think that's the issue. Their defense is really good. Their midfield is really stellar. But if Jamie Vardy isn't putting goals in the back of the net, I think this Leicester team becomes severely, severely limited. I agree. I think there's an interesting TIFO video that was released a few months ago, and they looked at sort of the evolution. As Jamie Vardy has gotten older over the past five or six years, they looked at the evolution of the kinds of goals that Jamie Vardy scores. And he's turned into way more of a predatory finisher rather than a player who brings the ball up 
from midfield. And I think he could still do that. He could still be your predatory finisher. But I think we know that with a lot of athletes, that explosiveness just goes one day. It just, you wake up one day and it's gone. You know, you look at Michael Owen, you look at Daniel Sturridge, you look at a lot of, you know, (laughs) shockingly English players, Theo Walcott a little bit, who, you know, wake up one day and they just, they lose that turn of pace. They lose that little bit of explosiveness. And this happens across all sorts of sports. If Vardy, I'm not saying that's well and truly gone. I think you have to wait and see until Leicester can maybe get some of these pieces back, like James Madison, who can play in some of those balls for him. But I'm not sure that he can do it all on his own anymore if that explosiveness isn't quite what it was. Sorry, I think a big miss for them too is at the back. I think Leicester made a lot of strides defensively over the past year and a half, certainly since Project Restart. However, the concern is that without Fofana, they don't have that really sturdy, explosive center back. And I don't think, I think we've seen Soyuncu make a lot of high profile errors towards the back half of seasons. And a concern is that Brendan Rodgers is a manager who, you know, puts it all together for three quarters of the season. And then it's that last quarter where his teams just don't conflict, don't, don't finish the race, essentially. You might say they slip, perhaps. I was trying to avoid using that word, but yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I mean, we saw that this week where they, they couldn't beat Slavia Prague over two legs. And it's not as if Slavia Prague led by Nikola Stanchu are any, you know, great uh, shakes when it comes to the kind of teams that Leicester have been performing against all year. Uh, one thing I did notice this week when I was doing a bunch of statistical work is that Jamie Vardy does have the highest individual XG of any player in the league by some margin. Um, he's, he's almost two more individual XG over um, Bamford, Salah, Fernandes, Watkins, and Kane, who are the next five in order. Um, but clearly, it's the putting it together and sort of finishing from the good positions that he can get himself into that is going to be the issue. Uh, before we jump over to Spain, we should probably talk about the officiating from this week and how maligned I think Premier League officials have been this year, and rightfully so. It seems like hardly a match week goes by where there isn't some sort of calamitous decision that costs some team or another. And today, I think the prime example of that was the handball slash no handball on Callum Hudson-Odoi, who was doing his best impression of the kid from the Karate Kid practicing the stork. It was the Um, green kick. Yeah, the crane kick. Uh, And it ended up being ruled no penalty, no handball, but the lack of clarity, the amount of time that it took being reviewed, and all of that have drawn a lot of scrutiny. So why don't we talk a little bit about what can be done to fix it? Well, I think we also have to talk about the horrendous decision from Lee Mason on Saturday in the West Bromwich Albion and Brighton game in which he gave a free kick. Uh, Lewis Dunk took the free kick, put the ball in the back of the net, only to learn that Lee Mason had blown his whistle a second time, ruling out the play. The play technically is dead. However, Lee Mason then gave the goal and then subsequently went to VAR and then discounted the goal after the fact it was a true calamity a calamitous three and a half minutes of officiating from lee mason who has been heavily criticized by managers and pundits and fans and players alike in fact he was the one that nuno espiritu santo said back in january should never officiate a premier league game again because he's not good enough and he was fined twenty five thousand pounds for that i think he should get his money back personally 
but yeah, Nathan, this is a, a banner week for poor officiating in the Premier League and a banner season for poor officiating in the Premier League. I think a lot of this comes down to the lack of transparency between, you know, what is and aren't the rules in the game. And I think we've seen a lot of times this season where even players don't know what the fundamental rules of the game are anymore and how they are adjudicated when it goes to VAR. I keep My mind keeps going back to that clip from a few years ago of the A-League referee where we got like the, the audio and video of how he makes his decisions, how he communicates with the VAR booth, you know, what goes into that. And I think we need that sort of transparency in transparency in the Premier League, sort of like in the NBA, when you're able to hear the thought process and the decision making of the referees. And in the NFL as well, as well, where they literally come on the microphone and explain what the decision is and why the penalty was given. I don't know, Caleb, what you think about this, but I think there just needs to be, especially as these referees keep making high profile errors, far more transparency from PGMOL and the FA. I'm, I'm all down for transparency. Like that sounds that sounds good. If anything, just to restore trust, I think what we've seen is that VAR, rather than providing certainty, has introduced a lot of uncertainty, even into things that are like com- very like obvious, right? Where people are like, "Oh no, it should go to a VAR check," right? And so now we we want more certainty, and we can only get that if we get explanations for decisions, because then at least we know what we are agreeing or disagreeing about. When we think a ref has made an incorrect VAR call, but we don't know their logic, we don't know if our disagreement is something they even considered. And so it makes communication, it makes debate, it makes you know the potential to create a better system impossible when we don't even know sort of how decisions are actually made. And I think fans just generally deserve you know explanations for major decisions. On the Chelsea thing today in particular, I don't think it was a penalty. I think it was a kind of like awkward play, but I don't think it was a handball deserving of a penalty. But I understand that it was a kind of weird edge case scenario, which causes a lot of confusion. And this just goes to the point again, that we need explanation to help dispel the reasoning process, especially for sort of stranger circumstances. Yeah, I think fans, Caleb, and also managers, if you listen to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's comments after the game, I don't know if you wanted to get into that, Nathan, the Luke Shaw and Ole post-match interviews, but those are really concerning when it comes to, you know, players and managers having trust in referees. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's something that has been happening a lot more in England than in other parts of the world, I think, it, but players and officials are on incredibly poor terms right now, I think, as a whole. And a lot of that stems from this lack of communication and not to mention, I mean, the pundits as well, like listening to to the NBC sports team today, multiple times have to sort of guess on air as to what the, the what was what is going on. I mean, the, the, that lack of clarity from people who have been in and around the game for so, so long and who have been calling games for so, so long is incredibly frustrating as well. And because it seems like there is such an easy fix because it's been done in places like the A-League. And even in the Eredivisie, they will they have officials mic'd up and they um, can release footage after the game of how officials will talk through these calls. But I just think it would be such a great help. Um, and maybe even another step would be to ensure that the people doing the VAR checks are independent from the normal sort of roster of Premier League officials because it would make it seem like less of a, uh, not, not like a boy, an old boys club, but it would make it seem like less of like the referees union, if you will, 
um, having VAR there just to reinforce the initial decision. Why don't we wrap up today by talking about a league in which a title race has emerged like a seedling in spring, as Ray Hudson might say. Atletico Madrid have been dropping points as of late, and although they beat Villarreal today, it's going to come down to the wire, it looks like. Atletico Madrid up five points on Barcelona, up six points on Real Madrid, who have a game in hand as well. It looks like we might be in for a, a pretty interesting spring, Caleb. I'm, I am prepared as a Barcelona fan to have nothing but La Liga to care about soon. I'm prepared. As of what, Wednesday this coming week, I will have nothing but La Liga, or in two weeks two or something. Weeks from now. Point being, the Champions League is not a thing. The Copa del Rey, honestly, we might come back against Sevilla based off of our performance this weekend, but let's just assume that's also a foregone conclusion. All I have, all I have is La Liga, and it is tantalizingly within reach. I don't think Barcelona are actually going to win. I think Atletico are going to pull through because they've just been the most consistent side. But it is shockingly close up at the top, considering at one point Atleti were like 12 points ahead. The big game will be when Barcelona play Atletico Madrid in like game week 33 or something like that. Because Atleti are what, up five points right now with a game in hand. Still need them to drop some other points, but it's possible. Um, So I don't know. I think it'll be close. I think Atleti will win at the end, but certainly there'll be slightly more drama. And at least for me as a Barcelona fan, once again, who will have nothing other than La Liga to care about, I'm, I'm down for that. I think Atleti have, Atleti have been dropping points recently, but I think the win today reinforced to me that they can win gritty, which is something that I think they haven't done over the past two months or so. They've been kind of reverting back to the Atleti that gets a goal and then concedes a goal but then can't go up the pitch to find the three points. Today they did that. Today they were pretty pretty dreadful in the opening stages of their game against Villarreal, and then they finally started to put some things together. João Felix scoring a incredible daisy cutter volley uh, to win the match for them today. So I think if they can win gritty, if they don't drop points against these teams like Levante, who gave them a real runaround over the past two weeks, uh, <laughs> making them drop points twice, I think they will be okay. I'm also not totally convinced in Barcelona's capacity to win big games. I know they won a big game this weekend against Sevilla, and that is a a step in the right direction, playing in a back three that I think they should use more often this season, especially considering it gets some of their veterans in safer positions like Sergio Busquets, who doesn't have to worry about covering as much ground. He can focus on things that he's good at, like his positioning and his distribution. So I think if Barcelona can you know, consolidate a few things tactically, maybe they have a shot at challenging Atleti. However, I think Atleti have way too many of these gritty wins in them to make the title race super competitive come that game week 33. We'll see, though. Yeah, and of course, there's going to be another Clasico coming up on April 11th. And Real Madrid, I mean, I will say I've been pretty impressed with their ability to get results considering the fact that they really have had about five fit substitutes they've had a squad size of like 14 to 15 they're bringing on fifa players fifa regens <laughs> in the champions league hugo duro who sounds like a player that i signed from my youth academy in fifa 21 with my five-star scout it doesn't sound like a real spanish name it sounds no. like a spanish name that some like british engineer made up 
Exactly. But Real Madrid, they've been getting results without a lot of their first team players. And they did win 1-0 against Atalanta. They probably should have won by more given that they were playing against 10 men after Remo Freuler got sent off about 17 minutes into the tie. They'll still have to compete in that second leg. They still, I think, are in with a shout as well, especially if their midfield can keep producing. Tony Kroos has had an unbelievable season um, in the last two months or so, even though I think I sort of thought he was going to be fading a little bit. Um, I think I thought Luka Modric was going to fade a little bit, but he's been finding an extra gear as of late. Um, and if the rumors are true, and if this is to be Zidane's last season um, in his latest stint with Real Madrid, then perhaps a come-from-behind La Liga victory would be a fitting end to things for someone who Madrid fans have revered over the last two decades. The concern is they need to get some of these injured players back. I don't know how long they can keep this run up. I think they have been quite fortunate in these games, like against Atalanta, to get that red card. I think Zidane has actually consolidated the system quite well around Tony Kroos and Casemiro, two veteran players. I think Casemiro is also someone, Nathan, who's having a really, really consistent season. I think he's someone who's probably underrated on the global stage. I think he's an incredible player. Um, Can they do it without Benzema? Can they do it without Ramos for a sustained period of time? Carvajal as well, these experienced guys. So we shall see, but I have been impressed with the fact that they've been just tallying these these low-scoring wins. Let me give my quick comment on Madrid. So last year, obviously, they won the league with a kind of average offense, and they were just like all defense won them the league. The thing is, they're trailing right now. They're trailing other teams. They don't have like a commanding lead or whatever. And I just don't think they can reasonably challenge when they are legitimately struggling to find a goal every game. I don't think defense-first approaches, which they just need to have right now, raise you from you know seven, eight points off the pace in third place to a championship. I think you need the goals. Even the players that they have fit, Finicius, Asensio, just have shown like an anti-goal scoring touch. It's they're allergic. They're allergic to the net. Um, and so I just don't see in this team, I just think legitimately, I don't look at their team and be like, oh yeah, like this team could definitely roll over a team 3-0. And it's been true all season, even when they had well, everyone we're gonna fit. Out. We're going to find out this next week. Well, we've got a Madrid, we've got a Madrid Derby a week from today. So a hu- pretty huge week. They've got Sociedad tomorrow and then Atleti on Sunday. I mean, those are, that's a huge six point swing. I think it all comes down to whether or not they can get these players back uh, from injury. However, the thing I will say is that Zidane knows how to motivate these players for big clashes in a way that like very few managers in the world do know how to do that. I think when he first came to Madrid, he was known as sort of a a motivational manager. I think that video of him in the Champions League final against Juventus that came out when he kind of like stood to the side for seven minutes and then came in and gave his team talk. I think that shows you that this guy, as a manager, knows how to get the most out of his players in tough situations. And I think potentially we could see that again, but it is down to whether or not he can get those experienced guys back. Absolutely. Well, that is something that we will be keeping a very close eye on. We also have sort of a a small eye on Leipzig, who are just three points back of Bayern, and the two teams play each other in a month as well in what could be a pivotal battle there. But busy week of soccer coming up. There's a game, uh, there's a Premier League match every day except for Friday in the next week. Uh, as well as preparation for the second leg of the Champions League 
a lot of stuff on the horizon. We'll be back at it as always at some point in this coming week. But for now, I've been Nathan Strauss. Caleb Rhodes. I've been Nick Vinnan. I just want to say a big shout out to Allison Becker, who obviously is going through a pretty tough time at the moment. It was really cool to see Curtis Jones dedicate his goal today to Allison and Allison's dad. So absolutely hope he is finding some peace, but we will see you all next time.